Boomer Monologues, Episode 7, Born to be Mild, Part 2, Head Out on the Highway. Picture a quaint little country convenience store nestled along some winding, lost-in-the-forest road a mile or so out of town. Late morning. Inside, the boy, a senior at the local high school, restocks the cigarette rack behind the counter. He's working alone at the moment, just for a while until the boss gets back. No customers in the store, him the only soul. It's quiet. And he's grateful for the lack of noise, the lack of customers right now, as he's new to the job and lacks confidence, especially when it comes to being on his own here at the store. He's unaware at first of the rising Doppler of an oncoming motorcycle somewhere out there down the road until it suddenly roars into the front yard and then just sits there idling, sputtering, sounding angry. The kid takes a gander out between the bud light and skull decals adorning the plate glass window and swallows. Biker, he says to himself. The kid nervously positions himself at the cash register, locks eyes on the glass front door, and waits. The door pushes open, and in steps, the black denim trousers and motorcycle boots, the black leather jacket, and a big, black, shiny, polycarbonate helmet looking like something out of a sci-fi flick. Black leather gloves and zippers, lots of zippers. That's what the boy actually sees. But what's his mind seeing? Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Terminator, perhaps? Can I help you, sir? The specter in black pays no attention to the question or the boy. Instead, the helmet swivels robotically left, then right, and then off to the back of the store he glides, out of sight among the shelves. Newsflash. That's me. No, 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 not the kid. The biker. The terror of Highway 1 there. The Arnold Schwarzenegger guy. Me. The totally non-threatening, scrawny-armed teddy bear of a high school English teacher. And unbeknownst to the kid, the only reason I didn't acknowledge him was I couldn't see him. I was, for all intents and purposes, blind. My eyes adjusting from the bright sunlight outside to the relative darkness inside the store. And why didn't I respond to his question? I never heard it inside that foam-lined helmet with the see-through visor down. And actually, my only reason for stopping there at all was to see if they had any movies for sale. Me, the lifelong film buff and collector of films. Now, wait just a minute here, you might well ask. How did the guy who swore to the gods above to ever and forever avoid any and all contact with motorized machines on wheels or skis end up becoming evil Knievel? Well, I'd turned 50 for one thing, so we wouldn't be too far off if we went with middle-aged crazy. And I, okay, I had, out of boredom, accepted a few rides here and there on the backs of some bikes by that time, as a passenger, mind you. I mean, people were always teasing, come on, hop on, it's fun, you'll love it. Peer pressure's a harsh mistress, and it did look like fun, despite the fact that the movie Easy Rider had scared the pants off me back in 69. And you see, this is where I feel justified in regarding myself as a George Plimpton of sorts. Like him, my life has been one long war against the dreaded scourge of boredom, me continually ferreting out newer hobbies one right after the other to distract myself during the otherwise long, uneventful decades. Unlike Mr. Plimpton, however, you'd find me opting for much less life-threatening pursuits. I'm talking armchair hobbies here, in other words. And starting at a very early age. In third grade, I was the young George Plimpton of collecting bird stickers in a scrapbook. Yes, I had dared to join the Junior National Audubon Society. Then it was on to becoming the George Plimpton of coin collecting. Indian head and Lincoln head since only, though, all I could afford. Later in grade school, I was also the George Plimpton of gluing World War II model airplanes together. 
only so I could set them on fire and launch them out of my second-story bedroom window, fantasizing in my snoopy mind allied bombers being shot down by enemy flak. Years later, I became proficient in transmitting and receiving Morse code as a ham radio operator, something I found unbearably exciting until, until it became boring. Later, in the late 80s and early 90s, I taught myself basic programming, which opened the door to me becoming a half-time English teacher, half-time computer instructor. And suddenly my phone was ringing off the hook, people needing inventory programs, begging for programs to crunch their bowling league tournament numbers, etc. And it was such an exciting and all-consuming world for me, until I got bored with it and turned, unfortunately, to video games. True story, I lost a couple of years of my life to Doom and Duke Nukem. But you know what? Oddly, so satisfying and psychologically adventurous, though at the same time personally risky where my ego was concerned, was becoming the performing poet. Back in high school, I was always known as the class poet, class of 64. But my stuff back then was doggerel, sing-songy, rhyming poetry written by dogs. Later, however, I grew into more substantial free verse poetry and then, with much encouragement, got coaxed into reading some of my stuff at a local open mic. The unexpected applause and laughter stimulated the pleasure centers of my brain. And when somebody informed me that there are open mics all over the state the hobby shifted into third gear. Now I realize that that may not seem so very exciting in your estimation, but remember, I lived in my Walter Mitty head and had a wild imagination. Me, the kid who had once owned a bicycle named Trigger. So much of what my poetry was depicting described a more adventurous, rough and tumble, testosterone world than my actual life. And I found inspiration from all over the place. In my English classes, for instance, we had been reading a novel titled When the Legends Die by Hal Borland, a story of a rodeo bum who travels around the Southwest in his beat-up pickup truck to bust Bronx all along the rodeo circuit. Well, I was driving a beat-up, dusty pickup. Anyway, that particular book spawned my wordsmith Buckaroo by Tom Lyford. First Monday of the month, third Saturday, fourth whatever, a rider of the purple prose circuit, like some Clint Eastwood, Bronco Billy, word cowboy rodeo bum, climbing into your dusty pickup and heading out on the road again, hauling ass to the next venue, rolling into the next new town. You, the upstart newcomer looking to earn a rep, honing your ride on a rhythm all your own, riding the go-rounds among all the other spoken word cowpokes. Ladies and gentlemen, now riding out of chute number six on a black bucking bronc full of piss and vinegar free verse named Apocalypse Now. What do you say? Let's give him a big hand. And you power ride that poem. Slap its flanks, gouge and punish it with your metaphorical spurs, riding out this memory, this hurt, to the crowd's roaring polite silence. And if you're any good at all tonight, you'll ride it to a standstill before the horn blows. And then limp from the arena, emotionally bruised and spiritually purged, grinning or grimacing, you're not sure which, but already gearing up for the next open mic further down the rodeo circuit. Yeah, see, that was me doing something as daring as putting pen to paper, but imagining it as a gut-wrenching, crowd-pleasing ride. How Walter Mitty is that? But at some point, I began to yearn for something more realistically real out of life. And I started keeping my eyes peeled for actual, more manly pursuits. 
I lifted weights for a while. I took up running 5K races for a while. You see, I was already nine-tenths of my way to middle-age crazy. But it all began innocently enough one fateful day at a family cookout in 1996. My son-in-law, Cap, suddenly wheeled what looked to me at the time a mean, very lethal machine out of his garage. What? You have a motorcycle? I was taken aback. You ride a motorcycle? His answer? A cool smile as he climbed into the saddle, started the engine, and revved it up a few times. So there it was. My kid brother was riding a bike now. My son-in-law rode a bike. And inexplicably, neither one of them had hit a screaming diesel that was California-bound or succumbed to the fate of the leader of the pack. My brain started chewing on that. Could it be just possibly that riding a hopped-up sickle that took off like a gun wasn't the automatic death sentence I'd been led to believe? Want to take a spin, he asked. What, me? Oh, no, no way, man. I'd kill myself, big thing like that, and wreck your bike to boot. No, you wouldn't. So I confessed my mini-bike fiasco back in the 70s. Listen to you, he said. You're admitting you rushed into it. You didn't give yourself time to figure out which was the brake, the clutch, or the gas. That's not the bike's fault. Yeah, okay, but still, you go ahead. I'm content just to watch. But even as I spoke those words, I recognized that old Walter Mitty tingle suddenly tickling my wannabe imagination. Consequently, the following Saturday, I followed Cap, me in my car, him on his bike, up to the abandoned fairgrounds and got my first lessons on handling a motorcycle. Climbing onto it felt like swinging a leg up over the back of an itching to buck Clydesdale, while my handlers, well, while Cap, kept her under control. It was terrifying. It was exciting. We started out, me lurching forward a few yards and then stopping, lurching forward again and then stopping, testing the brake and the accelerator. Once I'd got that down passably, I'd tentatively putt-putt a longer straight line forward and stop over and over. <laughs> I had to rely on Cap to muscle me and the bike around so I could head back in the opposite direction. More embarrassingly, I tipped us over a few times. They call that getting dumped. But it amazed me how freaking heavy the monster was. Funny thing, though, if you can manage to keep your bike standing ramrod straight up between your legs at a perfect 90-degree angle from the ground, it weighs no more than a feather. If, on the other hand, you allow the bike to lean, say, just two inches to the left or right, you'll feel the weight of the beast swinging the scales from zero to 40 pounds or so right through the handlebars. But let it yaw a foot. If you're me, you are going down because when the bike you're tipping weighs between 500 and 700 pounds, that's what they do, they take you down. So, long story short, there I was, well on my way to becoming the terror of Highway 101. Took a one-day class and got my license. Yeah, how scary is that? Then started window shopping for a suitable bike of my own. And hey, I wanted to be the guy who rode the manly bike. However, not so manly as to be without one of those easy-peasy electronic starter buttons. I, I just couldn't see myself stomping down on the crank pedal like those biker thugs in Marlon Brando's The Wild One. The first bike I bought, there would be three altogether, was a big burgundy 1977 Yamaha. It was basically the hot color that spoke to me, plus the fact that it had a windshield to keep the bumblebees and June bugs from bouncing off my face, voluminous fiberglass saddlebags, and the chrome. Turns out I'm a real chrome freak. Who knew? However, after I got her home and started practicing, I discovered it was a tad 
tall for me. Seated, only my tippy toes could reach the asphalt, making it difficult for me to keep the bike in that straight up 90 degree angle I was telling you about before. Then too, the monster was top heavy, had a high center of gravity, and always felt like it wanted to topple over. But despite that, I had to take my practice sessions out on the actual roads eventually. And again, you want to talk scary? But see, here I am again, seeing myself leaning somewhat over toward the George Plimpton side of the wannabe spectrum. To repeat a quotation cited earlier, George was, quote, helplessly and hopelessly driven to try his hand at glamorous jobs for which he was invariably unsuited. Unsuited. My middle name. So on my first day out, I happened to pull up at the intersection of the dirt road I was on and a paved highway. Coming to a full stop, my toes, very ballet dancer-like, tried to find and alight upon the earth beneath me. Alas, there was a pothole right under my right foot, and horror of all horrors, there to my immediate right loomed a dangerously deep drainage ditch. Straining the toe of my boot in vain to make contact rocked me. And tipping too far to the right, Jesus, I dumped 90 degrees to zero in a split second, vaulting me headfirst down into the crevasse with a 700-pound Yamaha, upside down, engine still running, slewing down on me like a pole-axe rodeo steer. And then, there I was. Cars and trucks flying past like nothing was wrong and me belly crawling out from under the still growling machine. Finally, out and back on my feet, I set about to manhandle the damn thing from its impossibly upside-down orientation back to the upright. Guess what? She was utterly immovable. I couldn't budge the thing a damn inch. Demoralized, I collapsed onto my knees and just remained there, kneeling, wondering why the hell I'd ever bought the elephant in the first place. Eventually, with a choking wheeze and a death rattle, she suddenly just gave up the ghost, stalled out, and went silent, as if to say, bingo, we're done here. No idea whatsoever to do. It was 1996, a quarter of a century ago, so there were no cell phones. I honestly contemplated just walking away, leaving the damn thing right where she lay and never looking back. Okay, just before the gloom of my 19th nervous breakdown completely steamrolled me, a rusty old gray pickup rolled over to the side of the road and out hopped the cavalry I hadn't even thought to pray for. Two shirtless, young and muscled farm boys eager to help. Now, they got that damn thing righted in a jiffy, no problem at all. They even managed to get it restarted for me. And those boys were so kind, far kinder than I deserved. And by that, I mean there was no snickering or grinning at the poor schmuck who believed he had the mojo to handle such a machine. I thanked them profusely, and they were all like, Oh, no problem, dude, happy to help. And don't worry, guy, you'll get the hang of it. Yeah, sure I will. I'll get the hang of it. But I was grateful, of course. Grateful that they'd come to my rescue. Grateful I didn't get a broken leg or a second-degree burn off the white-hot manifold pipes. Grateful that all I'd managed to come out with was nothing more than a bruised black-and-blue ego. As I waved the departing pickup away, a quotation from The Secret Life of Walter Mitty came back to taunt me. Next time, I'll wear my right arm in a sling. They won't grin at me then. And I thought, yeah, next time I'll wear my right arm in a sling and they'll see I couldn't possibly lift this brute myself. So anyway, on I soldiered four months with Big Red. But at the same time, keeping my eye out for a better fit, a better ride. And meanwhile, I was honestly becoming a fairly skilled motorcyclist. And as previously mentioned, I'd taken to decking myself all out in black leather and denim because, 
that's what you do. I joined the state's bikers association and carried the membership card in my new black chain wallet because that's what you do. Okay, I was blending in to beat the band. The Sam's Club incident. I arced into Sam's Club's parking lot, looped around it in a couple of circles for fun, revved the motor a few times for show, and parked. No problem. Went through the cumbersome process of peeling off and pocketing my black leather gloves, unsnapping the tight strap under my chin and dislodging my head out from the sweaty, claustrophobic helmet, unzipping and removing the very heavy leather jacket, because any time I went into a store with that thing on, I'd end up sweating like a pig, and stowing the jacket away in one of the saddlebags. Finally, I slipped on my Aviator Classic Ray-Bans to gaze around the parking lot like CSI Miami's David Caruso to see who'd been enviously eyeballing this exotic ritual and wishing they were me. Nobody was. A half hour later, I was back, stowing my purchases and reversing the long, time-consuming process of getting dressed for the ride home, imagining myself a knight of the round table, donning my armor before the jousting tournament. Finally, I swung my leg over the seat, brought the bike to a fully upright position, heeled back the kickstand, and readied myself to make my high-o silver and away. But when I hit the ignition, nothing happened. I did it again. Nothing. Damn it, the battery had apparently gone dead. I climbed back off the bike and looked around. What the hell was I going to do? The only thing I could think of was to push the damn thing forward, try to get it moving fast enough so I could hop on and jumpstart it. So taking the handlebar grips in hand, I gave her my best heave-ho. Christ, I could barely move the damn thing, and then only at a snail's pace at best. Way too heavy, way too much inertia. And by the way, did I honestly believe I could get myself mounted while pushing her at a crawl without getting dumped? No, not a chance. So I looked around. One far corner of the parking lot had a little more elevation than the rest. Not much. But if I could manage to get her rolled up that very slight slope, turn her around and climb on her, just maybe I could get her rolling back down fast enough to perform a successful jump start. But jeez, that corner was a good 40 yards away. A little later, halfway to the hump, I had to stop and pull off my helmet so I could breathe. Then... Another minute later, I had to stop again to peel my leather jacket back off to keep from having a heat stroke. In all, it took me a good 20 minutes to get myself up that slope and turned around. I was panting and had to wait a while for the strength to ebb back into my arms, legs, and stomach muscles. Finally, though still feeling lightheaded, I remounted and pushed off. Now, wouldn't you think something that massively heavy with my 190 pounds added on to boot, that gravity would start rolling us downhill? Think again, it didn't. Of course, it wasn't really a hill, was it? So there's that. It did move. I mean, even cold molasses will move. Keeping her balanced was iffy, though, as it was simply inching its way down the slope. After only a 10-foot roll, I sensed the ride was already slowing to a stop and thought... What the hell? Here goes. I popped the clutch. Oof! The bike slammed dead stop into an invisible wall. And then, of course, down we went, pinning one of my boots under her full weight. In Greek mythology, Sisyphus was the guy punished by Zeus to eternally having him roll a big boulder up a steep hill. And every time he got the rock near to the top, it would slip his grasp and roll back down again. Okay, long story short, I got us uprighted, turned us around once again, and began the second death crawl back toward the higher ground. But damn it, I was Sisyphus. 
If I didn't die of a heart attack, I'd at least have a story to tell the mythology kids next time his name came up in class. But suddenly, I heard a couple of voices, a guy and a girl calling out to me from behind. I was so relieved to have an excuse to stop and take a breather. The two introduced themselves, said they too were bikers, and offered to help. Sweet. When I explained that my battery had inexplicably gone stone dead, they offered, praise Jesus, the needed push. Hop on, they told me. I did. And when I was ready, the bike in neutral and my left toe champing at the bit to slam us into gear when we reached optimum speed, they gave me the old heave-ho. It was disappointing, to say the least, at how slowly they were able to get me rolling, but it was a little faster than I'd managed. And then, hit it, the guy cried, and my toe shifted us into gear. Click, oomph! Damn, the bike hit the same damn invisible wall as before, stopping on a dime. It was perplexing. Both of them were now frowning at the instrument panel between my handlebars. I don't get it, the guy said to himself. And that's just not right, his partner chimed in. Yeah, he added. I mean, even if it didn't start, it at least should have sort of his voice trailed off. I was about to add my own inane two cents, like, well, don't ask me, when he went on, oh, wait just a minute here. What, she asked. And then she, like me, watched his right hand slowly reach out to my right handlebar grip. Oh, she said, and then nodding. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I see it now. See what? I wanted to know, wanting to be included. But then I too saw it and cried, No, 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 don't tell me. But there it was, with nothing I could do about it as I watched him thumb a little toggle switch of the kill switch back up from off to on. The kill switch being a simple on-off control for the bike's entire electrical system, just like the on-off button on your computer. Honestly, I'd never paid any attention to that damn thing. I just left it on all the time and forgot about it. Guess it's not your battery after all, he said with thinly veiled disgust, while my face burned with embarrassment. Oh, God, I blurted out in my own pathetic defense. You know, I never shut that switch off, ever, I swear. Never even used that switch. Damn, I must have brushed against it by accident when I climbed off the bike. I could hear myself talking way too fast. Meanwhile, he reached across my chest to the left handlebar grip where he engaged the clutch and then hit the ignition with his right. My Yamaha purred right to life, just like she was supposed to, just like she already had. I I haven't actually been riding all that long, actually, I called after them, oh so needlessly, as they strode back across the lot to their rides. You know, just, I mean, I just got my license a while ago, a little while ago. And then they were gone, and I was so relieved to have them gone. I mean, how embarrassing was that? Why is it that being a wannabe is so hard? Suddenly... I almost wished I had yelled at them. I had my right arm in a sling just before you two showed up, you know? So, I mean, I couldn't possibly have flipped that kill switch by myself. Yeah. I roared straight home after that and secreted my bike away out of sight in the barn for a couple of weeks and laid low. But fortunately, time lessens all wounds. Sort of. Anyway, I got over it, mostly and eventually climbed back in the saddle again. Because I wasn't quite yet willing to throw in that towel. Despite my repeated embarrassments, I still wanted to be a real biker. Just like Pinocchio wanted to be a real boy, okay? It might take more setbacks, maybe even more embarrassments, but damn it, I was gonna beat this thing. I didn't wanna be a wannabe forever. So what I did do, after licking my wounds sufficiently, is trade in my ride for a much more manageable bike, a lowrider. It didn't stand nearly as high as the first bike. So with this one, I could sit in the saddle with the soles of both boots flat on the ground. 
That was very reassuring. Secondly, it had a low center of gravity, so it was nowhere near as tippy as the other. And though still very heavy, it would be much easier for me to muscle this one across a parking lot should I ever unwittingly toggle the kill switch again. And oh, I fell in love with this one. She was a beauty, and more powerful than the other. My first bike had a 750cc engine, but my new ride, 1100cc. I like the sound of that. Despite the fact that as a card-carrying Walter Mitty English teacher, I had only the most obscure idea what those numbers really meant, except more power, which to me was a to-be-sought-after status symbol. Yeah, check out my badass machine, 1100cc. And you know, it looked just like a Harley, but that really wasn't a good thing because reportedly the disdain for Harley clones that real deal bikers have is urban legendary and could sometimes get physical. So when I'd roll past a gang of real bikers, all parked along the roadside somewhere, and they'd yell out to me, nice hog, dude, I'd gun right off as fast as I could. I won't lie, though. I honestly did become a proficient motorcyclist. I rode for six years and thousands of miles, hundreds with my wife Phyllis on the back. I did the Laconia New Hampshire Biker Rally twice. The biker toy runs providing toys for tots at Christmas. Did parades. I once took a four-hour jaunt up into Canada just for lunch, turned right around and rode straight back home. Only got one ticket for speeding. Could have been oh so many more and only had one slightly bad accident, hit by a car. So even though I do count myself firmly on the wannabe scale, since down deep inside I could never really shake that feeling that I was only a tourist in Bikerville, I think I at least have earned the right to say, been there, done some of that, and got at least a few of the t-shirts. But all in all, it was just me being me, just going through another one of my hobby phases, like George Plimpton, trying out anything and everything under the sun in order to ward off that existential boredom, the boredom that pushed me to sample the National Guard, amateur radio, computer programming, photography, 5K racing, being a church deacon, doing the stand-up comic thing, doing the small-town, local poet laureate and memoirist thing, and even doing a short stint as a licensed UFO investigator. Oh, and, oh yes, now, as of today, podcasting. My first real test, though, as a someday real biker, turned out to be an invitation to hit the Laconia Biker Rally in New Hampshire. I rode down there for a possible three-day weekend with a couple of old-timers, guys who could tell stories about the time they once rode all the way out to Sturgis, South Dakota, the mecca of all American rallies. I was anxious to go, anxious to be able to humbly brag to whomever. Laconia Bike Week? Sure, I did that. So yes, for me, it was looming large as a rite of passage. Finally, Laconia. It was getting on close to dark when we rolled into downtown Laconia, and oh my god, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of bikes. Most of them real, chromed-up gorgeous beauties, too, all parked right down the center of Main Street in two parallel rows, far as the eye could see. You could hardly find a spot for your own, and once you did, you had to worry if you could ever find it again, seriously. So, there's this big hill in Laconia, perfectly viewable right from Main Street, where all the action takes place, especially at night. The constantly drizzling rain that day was putting a cold, clammy damper on the rally. But the bikers up on the hill there apparently never got the memo. I could spy dozens of orange smudges of campfires 
smoldering away. And from the raucous yells, laughter, and loud blaring music, along with the enticing aroma of a pig roast or two wafting down, it was easy to imagine a scene right out of Lord of the Flies unfolding up there. One spot must have really been burning mightily, judging from the volcano-like plume of black smoke pumping up into the dark mushroom cloud above. And the fireworks. Apparently, there was an intermittent firefight in progress. Rockets and Roman candles like little cruise missiles streaking every which way across the landscape in the thin haze. So we got our motors running and solemnly began the climb up the winding wet dirt road to check out the Valhalla of this rally. A funny thought. Such a long time had passed since I'd first close-pinned an ace of spades to the wheel struts of my childhood bicycle. And now, four decades later, look at where I was. The road forked at the top and in the apex was a little table with nothing on it but a poster propped up in the middle. I supposed it was a ticket-taker's table, and they would have to pay an entrance fee to get into the carnival of dark souls you could see moving around in the background. But no, it was just two eager young boys manning that station. And the sign? What did the sign say? The sign said, Show us your tits. Yes, that was the welcome wagon. Crude, oh yeah, but that was the beginning of a night that was to feel like a feverish, drug-induced dream. And into that dream we rolled, me, the voyeur, a sheep in wolf's clothing. But here it is. For some reason, I've always been someone who every so often needs to experience something completely different to break up the existential monotony of this otherwise drab life. And more often than not, it is as the up-close observer and not the participant. I mean, hey, I once spent a night in Boston walking a bizarre two-man sightseeing tour through the combat zone at midnight. Go figure. Anyway, it was pretty much how I'd always imagined Hades up there. We picked our way through the smoke of the campfires and hellish keg parties and pig roasts and the occasional random explosions, all of which was overlaid by a constant, irritating, deafening combustion engine racket seemingly coming from anywhere and all over. Did you ever see the 1987 film The Lost Boys? Well, it has nothing to do with Peter Pan and his little band of half-pints. No, this movie centers on Kiefer Sutherland's wilding, night-loving gang of vicious teenage vampires. My point? The hill encampment at Laconia gave off the same dark and dangerous vibes. Which is why, as I'm remembering this little Alice-down-the-rabbit-hole detour in my life, the Lost Boys opening score echo in the Bunnymen's cover of The Doors' People Are Strange has begun playing in the back of my jukebox brain. Yeah, people are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. Streets are uneven when you're down, when you're strange. Faces come out of the rain when you're strange. God, I love that song. <laughs> and believe me, people were strange in Laconia that weekend. Case in point, I was dying to see what was responsible for that incredible tower of smoke we'd spotted down on Main Street. And looking across the encampment, we could see it big time now. It was about a football field away from us. And whatever it was, it also seemed to be the source of that maddening, annoying racket. Tom's curious, one of my companions said. Let's head over and show him something I'm betting he ain't never seen before. And this is where the dream really spun crazy. For the boys over there had handcrafted a device fashioned out of wood 
Basically a slender, upright, three-sided box, open at the top and front, just a framework standing about two feet high, designed so you could sit on your idling bike, walk it backward, and roll your rear wheel right into its open end, kind of like backing into a garage built only for a single tire. This mystery mechanism would do two things as far as I could see. One, keep your bike upright, and two, somehow lock your bike in place so it can neither go forward nor backward, despite how resolutely you put the pedal to the metal. Kind of like one of those boots cops sometimes clap onto the rear tire of an illegally parked car. And the point of this, you might ask, well, that's what I was wondering. So, this biker, his face one big, goofy, drunken grin, backed his hog into the wheel slot and then just sat there idling the motor. He was surrounded and cheered on by about 50 jolly ho-ho-ho-and-a-bottle-of-rum pirates. And then somebody slid what appeared to be a thin cedar shingle under his rear tire. And somebody else yelled, Go! Everybody went wild, hooting and hollering and raising their beer bottles in a toast as the biker revved his motor four or five times and then slammed her into gear and gunned it. But he wasn't going anywhere. He didn't slew off with a big rooster tail of mud and gravel spewing out behind him, no. But oh, his rear tire wanted to, wanted to bad. Nope, it remained locked fast in that wooden stall, stationary. But he was really opening that bad boy up, and the hellish, roar-shrieking banshee racket from the friction was like the Indy 500 and chainsaws and jackhammers and dentist drills and you name it combined. Okay, know that the tire's dread was starting to slough off like a snake's skin on that little cedar shingle, and the stench of smoking cedar and burning rubber filled the air with a widening funnel of black and oily blue smoke. Whoa, I was witnessing a primitive ritual here, and quickly going deaf, not to mention asphyxiating. But this thing, it just went on and on. What's the goddamn point, I asked. Isn't this bad for the motor and killing a perfectly good tire? And then I swear that shingle burst into flames. I mean, what the ever-loving kabang! Jesus Christ, somebody just tossed a stick of dynamite into our midst. But wait, no, it was just the tire. The tire had exploded, just blew. And oh my God, didn't the mob just lap that up? Didn't they just about fall on their asses, busting a gut, cackling and hooting up a storm, laughing and giggling like a bunch of idiot Pixar minions, for Christ's sake. A goddamn scene right out of Monty Python. I just didn't get it. I didn't get it. Tires are expensive, not to mention pretty difficult to mount back on the rim. So wouldn't this biker regret having just wasted what to me was a valuable asset? Well, his drunken jack-o'-lantern leer said otherwise. Pushing his bike forward out of the slot, he was one proud and happy dude. He just enjoyed his four and a half minutes of fame he had. And apparently, life just didn't get any better than that for him. Next announced the guy whom, I assume, owned the little contraption. And another biker, waiting in the wings, gunned his machine around in a loop, parked, and eagerly began walking his rear wheel back into the damn thing. But just then, an errant rocket came sizzle-zipping in a near-miss right over our heads and exploded in a flash of flame and sparks against the fence. Damn those fools, hell's angels camped over there, someone said, pointing. Gonna get somebody wounded or killed. Get us all shut down too, for Christ's sake. Fortunately, the rain by then was coming down pretty heavily, enough so to coax us to head back down to the campground below and the welcome shelter of our pup tents. But as we rolled down that hill, my head was swimming with the new anthropological glimpses and sociological wonders of humanity I'd just experienced. It had been like watching a National Geographic documentary. What a strange world I had infiltrated. 
What strange, strange tribes humanity has. People are strange. When you're a stranger, faces look ugly. Several hours later, I came to on a sunny blue sky morning with the strong realization that, you know what? I think I've seen enough of Bikerville to last me a lifetime. I didn't really know my two companions all that well. They were a good 10 years older than me, but I was pretty sure they couldn't care less if I scooted off a day early. So I broke camp, looked them up, said my thank yous and goodbyes, and rolled back down on a main street in search of some bacon and eggs. I was already looking forward to spending time by myself on the long ride home, taking it slow and leisurely, checking out the sights I'd missed along the way. It had rained most of the way down, so I hadn't seen much on that leg of the journey. But one thing was for sure. I hadn't come down all this way for nothing, meaning that now having become a Laconia bike rally veteran, I sure as hell wasn't about to go home empty-handed. No way. I had some serious t-shirt shopping to do. I was planning to get four or five, and I couldn't wait to wear one to school on the next Dress Down Friday, so my students would be all like, whoa, Mr. L, I mean, like you were down at Laconia during Biker Week? And me, scoring high fives all around and the welcomed, newly respectful dude just brushing it off like it was no biggie. Yeah, sure, I, uh, I took a couple biker buddies of mine along with me, showed them around. Stepping back out of the cafe, I was struck by how unexpectedly exotic busy Main Street and all the crowded streets in Laconia appeared. All the little vendors' kiosks and tents crowding the sidewalks. To small-town imaginative me, it felt like I'd walked into some crowded Moroccan bazaar in a Hollywood movie. Reliving it in my mind right now, Al Stewart's song, Year of the Cat, is getting stuck in my head. On a morning from a Bogart movie, in a country where they turn back time, you go strolling through the crowd like Peter Lorre contemplating a crime. Anything and everything was being hawked, from hot dogs, burgers, pizza slices, to gang membership interviews. Knives, ninja nunchucks, and throwing stars. Tattoos, leathers, helmets, chain wallets, scarves, and do-rags. Commemorative shot glasses and postcards. Flags, sew-on patches and pins, incense and peppermint, and every kind of trinket, bobble, bangle, and beads imaginable and t-shirts galore. Feeling tentatively confident among the legions of my look-alike badasses all slicked up in our required black uniforms, I swaggered into a number of these little establishments to sample their wares. And that was fun. Kind of like trick-or-treating back when I was a kid. It was interesting to note, however, that the vendors' stations were spread across a spectrum between two general types or motifs. The more stylish baby boomer slash yuppie kind of kiosks for guys like me on one end, and then, of course, the authentic, darker, sunny barger slash gimme shelter emporiums that exuded vibes that would give any wannabe serious pause when stepping inside. I put off the darkest of that lot for last, but finally gambled a step with caution and no swagger inside. The proprietor was, wait for it, Danny Trejo. Yes, the scarred, pockmarked, real-life ex-con and actor who played Machete in Breaking Bad. Okay, so that was a lie. It wasn't really Danny Trejo. But if ever a film biography of Mr. Trejo were to be made, the proprietor of that gypsy establishment would have been a shoe-in for the title role. Bad vibes all around. He gave me the willies as soon as I crossed the threshold, and he hadn't even looked up and noticed me yet. Plus, wouldn't you know it, it turned out 
I was the only customer in the shop. Just me and him. Goosebumps. I felt my survival training kicking into gear. Yeah, you see, I've browsed through an illustrated survival manual or two in my time, so I knew the drills. One, never make direct eye contact with a threatening canine. Therefore, I looked askance. Two, never show fear. Best I could, I pasted a smarmy smirk on my face. Three, throw your overcoat open as wide as possible to appear larger than you actually are. Yeah, okay, moving right along. His place offered the normal leathers and the doodads emblazoned with live to ride, ride to live. Get your motor running, highway to hell, and the like. But much of it was way too grim reaper for my tastes. Way too many sheathed swords and serrated tactical knives. Arrays of holsters, Smith & Wesson insignia. Everything from wearable pins to flags, bumper stickers and wall posters with swastikas, Jolly Rogers, skulls, and flaming skeletons astride Harleys. I shuffled around the outer edges of the place, hoping to find, I don't know, something, anything cheap, some I-was-there trophy I could possibly buy, lest he, I don't know, yell or swear at me or something if it turned out I was just some annoying, no-sale tourist wasting his time. One thing you'll find at all biker rally kiosks, though, is lots of little pewter items, jewelry, and doodads. I don't know if pewter is really cheap or what, but this guy had a gazillion of the little silvery gray knickknacks for sale. There were pewter roses pins for the ladies' bikers' leather jackets, pewter motorcycle pins, mostly Harleys, of course. But there was this one thing there, and at all the other little vendor stations, too, that I was really curious about. Actually, it had been intriguing me for some time. It was nothing more than a single term or word unfamiliar to me, but etched or stamped on all sorts of biker memorabilia. I had no clue to its meaning, but whatever it was, it was certainly a hit with bikers. Obviously, it meant something, but what? And the odd thing is, though, that the very first time I'd run into the word was not at any rally or biker event, but just something I'd noticed back home at the local lake. Most of the camps and cottages crowding the shores and inroads all have their little signs out front identifying family owners like Johnson or Smith. And some have cute word plays on the names such as the Boyd's Nest. But one name on a camp down the road from ours reads Dillagaff. Now, I didn't know the Dillagaffs, hadn't in fact ever seen a soul staying there. It had always left me wondering, though, who they were and also about the origin of their name. I'd assumed Norway for some reason, but I digress. Whatever it meant, it was universal among bikers. You'd spot Dillagaff embossed on bikers' pins or printed on the decals adorning their Harley's gas tanks. And me, the English teacher who prides himself on his command of vocabulary, always game to add a new entry to his vast internal dictionary? Hell yeah, inquiring bikers want to know. I was looking at this whole little Laconia jaunt as my final exam, the capstone of my real Biker 101 course. So anyway, pawing through all the little pewter items, I easily came up with a couple of Dillagaff pins. It was time. I took a deep breath and decided to bite the bullet and put this mystery to rest. Excuse me? Sir? Slowly, eventually, the proprietor, whose grim appearance set me wondering just how many rival gangbangers this guy had offed, appeared before me on the other side of the counter. Never a yes or what can I do for you? Just the hairy eyeball once over, like I was a cockroach he'd just discovered at the bottom of his Doritos bag. 
so I cleared my throat. <clears throat> I've got a question. Now, I don't know why I raised my voice a pitch higher at the end of that statement, making it sound like I've got a question was my question. I mean, what was I, on Jeopardy or something? God, this dude was making me nervous. And it was obvious he didn't give a rat's ass what I had just said. He just waited there, inspecting me, clocking how much of his time I was willing to waste. So, anyway, I went on, holding up one of the Delegaph pins in question. I keep seeing this word all over the place, and so I was just wondering... God, I was beginning to sound like that underage dork in American graffiti, trying to buy a pint of liquor without any ID. Just wondering what this word means. No answer. Not even a blink. Maybe he felt I hadn't finished. So, anyway, I was just wondering, you know, if it's somebody's last name or something. Kind of sounds Norwegian to me and all, but, but I froze. Because his face was drifting in on mine, drawing so close we were nose to nose. His breath reeked of garlic. I was paralyzed. He just studied me for a few silent seconds, as if he had never seen anything quite like me before. And then, Jesus H. Christ, he growled right into my face. Do I look like I give a fuck? Holy shit, I mean, I was all like, what's this guy's problem? I mean, was that any way to run a business? To make money off potential customers by swearing at them and acting like you'd like to rip their heads off? I was terrified, justifiably. But then I did manage to choke out a few words. Hey, Jesus, man, I'm sorry, I apologize. I, I, I really do, but see, I was honestly just asking as I said, he rudely interrupted, do I look like I give a fuck? which was when I heard my little pewter trinket go click onto the countertop. I didn't even know my hand had let go of it even. My heart was pounding. I was having a little trouble breathing evenly. And this guy's breath really stunk. Garlic has become the lifetime stink of fear in my mind, thanks to him. The fight-or-flight response had kicked in, although with me it's always been flight-or-flight. I chanced a sidewise peek over my shoulder to make sure I knew where the front door was. It was close, thank God. Well, touch and go close if he decided to come over the damn counter. His eyes darted over there, too. He was reading my mind and seeing exactly what it was I was planning. I was sure he knew I was about to bolt. And that, like, somehow, he'd sized me up for what I was. Just some yuppie who'd once clothespinned a playing card into the spokes of his bicycle and believed that that gave him the audacity to believe he could grow up to be not a motorcyclist, but a biker. Jesus. I knew I needed to get my body in gear and my feet moving. Again, sir, I said, backing, edging away, edging closer to the exit, I do sincerely apologize. However, I is third. Do I look like I give a fuck? Sent me scampering out the door. Epilogue. And speaking of my brother, Walter, how was it that he handled his humiliation at the end of Thurber's short story? When his wife berated him, like scolding a child, I'm going to take your temperature when I get you home. But then, as they passed the drugstore on the corner, once again, she said, Wait here for me. I won't be a minute. She was more than a minute. He stared at the wall of the drugstore. It began to rain, rain with sleet in it. He stood up against the wall of the drugstore, smoking. He put his shoulders back and snapped his heels together. To hell with the handkerchief, said Walter Mitty scornfully. He took one last drag on his cigarette and snapped it away. And then, with that faint, fleeting smile playing about his lips, he faced 
the firing squad. Erect and motionless, proud and disdainful, Walter Mitty the undefeated, inscrutable to the last. <laughs>